title, nobody'd stay. One of the things that I try to do is help um, help people sort of see what's going on behind Scripture. That that um, there are a lot of things going on in the first century that are very different than the 21st century. And to try and understand the Scriptures in their original contexts so that we can then have a, a means of safely and I think with integrity applying them to our contexts. Um, and so, um, I, I do try and, and uh, spend quite a bit of time just uh, trying to get us to think about things very, very differently. Um, so, for example, to talk about worship, that in itself is rather interesting, especially in terms of Paul. We'll see this tomorrow afternoon. But Paul never calls what is done on Sunday worship. And yet that has become for us the primary meaning of the term. But when Paul talks about Sunday, he calls it the assembly. And he clearly holds some sort of distinction between what happens in the assembly and worship as a whole. And it's not just Paul that does that. It is other writers as well. And so, um, since one of the things that Paul is calling us to do in Romans is to worship, I thought we might look at worship from another perspective, from Matthew's perspective. And of course, both Paul and Matthew are working from perspectives that have already been around for a while. They are using the Scriptures, the Old Testament, for what they are talking about, filling in the gaps. Um, I, sometimes we forget about how, signif how significant that is. I would imagine that many of you were not aware that Luke portrays the story of Pentecost as a reliving of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Uh, you would need to be aware not only of the Old Testament story of Sinai, but also Jewish interpretations of that event that were current at the time that Luke writes. Um, but all of the New Testament writers are assuming that we have a very strong understanding of God's Word, and God's Word for them is the Old Testament. And virtually on every page of the New Testament, the Old Testament is there, which allows the writers to say a whole lot more because they know we can fill in the gaps. Okay? Um, so, Matthew 25. For those of you who aren't math majors, it comes right after Matthew 24. <laughs> and well, we need to set the context of what's going on in Matthew. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells the disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed. And that is very difficult for the disciples to understand. And again... 2,000 years down the road, we're not surprised that there's no temple. We're not surprised that Gentiles are allowed in. A lot of the things that the earliest disciples wrestled with 
we just take for granted. And because of that, we sometimes don't understand the tensions and the conflicts and, and the concerns that are actually being expressed in the New Testament because from our perspective, they've been resolved. But when you are a Jew in the first century, the temple is the most important place on earth. And even if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the temple still remains the most important place on earth. In fact, one of the key scenes in Jesus' ministry centers around the table, uh, the temple where, I'm, I'm thinking of food still, clearly. That was an outstanding meal. I'm going, that's horrible when the physical food is better than the spiritual food you're being dispensed. <laughs> but um, Jesus enters into the temple riding on a donkey. And all the Jews know how this is supposed to play out. The Jews are going crazy. They're singing Psalm 118 and throwing palm fronds in front of Him and their cloaks in front of Him. And the Messiah is coming into His own and Jesus is following the script. Jesus is doing exactly what every Sabbath teacher had taught in Sabbath school using the flannel graphs. Right? And Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey goes to the temple, but then he changes the script. You see, when he gets to the court of the Gentiles, he's supposed to speed up his donkey because the court of the Gentiles is filled with filth. It's filled with Gentiles. It's filled with sick Jews. It's filled with people selling animals and exchanging coins. And they've made part of the court of the Gentiles into a main thoroughfare through Jerusalem. And he's supposed to speed up his donkey and get into the temple proper where the walls, these huge 80-foot high walls, separate us from the filth. Go through the court of women, go to the court of Israelites, dismount, proclaim himself king, and raise an army and kill Gentiles. But what Jesus does is he stops his donkey in the court of the Gentiles. And he stops the traffic, he heals the sick, he kicks out the people selling animals and exchanging money. And he starts yelling at the top of his lungs, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all Gentiles. That's what gets him killed. He doesn't follow the script. And that becomes a, a, a faith crisis. Even for the earliest Christians, it was firmly believed that if Jesus was the Messiah, then the temple would be the central place of worship. There was no way that they could understand a life without the temple. And in fact, quite a few of the writings in the New Testament are responses to the fact that a lot of Christians lose their faith when the temple is destroyed by the Romans. They believe that prophecy stated that the temple would last forever. And when Herod started his rebuilding program around 19 B.C., the building that he put together, people were sure would last forever. And the tearing down of that temple stone by stone was faith shattering. Even to Christians. Even to Christians. And so, Matthew is trying to address 
that type of issue. And he records these sayings of Jesus about, you need to be prepared for the fact that I'm heading to Jerusalem and things aren't going to turn out exactly the way you think. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed by the Bible majors, crucified by the Romans, and raised by God. And the disciples can't get any one of those three down. And the disciples are just amazed at how glorious a building this temple is. And Jesus says, okay guys, we need to get you ready for this. It's not going to play out the way you think. And so he tells them, the temple is going to be destroyed. So what it means for the temple to last forever has to be conceived in a very, very different way. And the different writers in the New Testament will approach it in a number of different ways. The author of Acts talks about the church being the temple that lasts forever. Um, You sort of see the same type of thing in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter where it talks about being built into a holy of holies out of living stones and that we are the temple that lasts forever. But that's a hard sell in the first century. That's not what people were expecting. And if the temple's going to be gone, what does that mean for worship? It's the center of life. It's the center of a relationship with God. And if the building's gone, what do we do? How do we worship God in in a, a much more pregnant sense than just ritualistic worship? The temple was the center of life. And so, that's what Matthew talks, has Jesus tell us in Matthew 25. In chapter 24, the temple will be destroyed. So, what does worship look like without a temple? Without a place? And so, Jesus introduces the disciples to the possibility, the reality, that the story is not going to follow the script, that Mrs. Birkenstein was wrong with the flannel graphs, that uh, things are going to be earth-shatteringly different, but they need to stay the course. They need to be focused. And he uses three parables that build upon each other to try and help his disciples to live through this interim time, of which we are still participating. Matthew 25 still speaks to us as we wait for Christ to return. How are we the temple of God? How do we live this out? With the concept that there is no place. So, he starts out with The story of the ten bridesmaids. Five smart ones and five foolish ones. Now, we all know stories of weddings where something has gone wrong. Um, I I hear hear the laughter, so there's probably lots of stories in in this one. And uh, uh, I bet you by tomorrow, uh, Doug will have one too. <laughs> Doug's gonna Doug's gonna fill us in with some more. 
often it's going to be, right, the ring bearer or the, the girls throwing flowers all over the place. Flower girls. That's, go figure. That It actually makes sense. Flower girls. Um, had one wedding where the girl was really suffered from high anxiety, so she took an overdose of medication. And... Uh, uh, was not able to actually say I do, so the uh, <clears throat> maid of honor just sort of tugged her hair, so her, her head went up and down. <laughs> okay, so we, we all have funny stories. Um, but I have not yet, uh, I, I won't rule the possibility out. But I have not yet encountered a story where somebody did something to mess up a wedding and that totally destroyed the relationship from that point on. Usually when something goes wrong, we just sort of ha, ha, ha and move on with it. And it, we're family, we're friends, we stay together. The same thing's going to be true in the first century. But one of the things that Jesus frequently does when he tells parables is he catches us into a story that we enjoy. Ah, a good, funny wedding story. But then he throws in a twist. One of the twists is that it takes a long time for the father and the bridegroom to come to an agreement. They've already agreed 12 months earlier. A Jewish wedding has already been set and established, but it's a matter of honor in terms of this bartering for the bride's price and things like that. And so sometimes it could go long, but it had been settled 12 months ago, so it's really not typically that big of a deal. And five of the bridesmaids are just, they're set up for what normally happens. The other five go, you know what? There's always this off chance that it will be different. So we're going to prepare just in case it takes longer. It did take longer. And by the time the negotiations have been finished, it's time for a huge party, and only five of the bridesmaids have oil for their lamps. They're the only ones who get to participate in the parade, which is a big part of the marriage ceremony in uh, the first century in Judaism. Now, when the five other bridesmaids show up after they've gotten their oil, we're expecting them to just sort of be the butts of the jokes at the party. But the bridegroom meets them at the door and says, go away, I don't even know you. From friends and family to total exclusion. Nobody listening to Jesus is prepared for that. And Jesus is trying to use this very well-known stock type of story to say, you really need to think very, very carefully about what God's doing here. And how you conceive of time. I like to tell my, uh, my students that if God were a train conductor, he would be Italian rather than German. That 
if you travel in Europe, you can expect German trains to be within one minute of when they're scheduled to arrive. Uh, if it's later than that, something horrible has happened. In Italy, if the train shows up within 72 hours of when it was scheduled, it's still on time. And Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples. The disciples think that in the next few days, the new age is going to be brought in with them as 12 princes over Israel, reigning on 12 silver thrones, six on either side of Jesus in a gold throne. They, they already know what this is supposed to look like. And Jesus says, it doesn't look like that. It's very, very different. Sometimes we do the same thing, right? We have certain ideas about how the church is supposed to be. And sometimes scripture sort of slaps us upside the head and says, no, it's really supposed to be something very, very different. And so what, what, what Jesus is doing is saying, it's going to take longer than you think. So be wise about time. Think about being prepared for God's timetable as opposed to your timetable. Then he goes to the next parable, which we call the parable of the talents, which is somewhat unfortunate because we tend to think of a talent as the ability to sing and dance. Right? And we totally miss the point of this story, and this is another one of those situations where comparing multiple English versions comes in handy. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, in verse 15, we have the landowner going off on a journey and he's dispensing something to his servants. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 25, verse 15, what is being dispersed according to your Translation. Okay, a talent, bags of gold, valuable coins. What was that? Money. Sometimes, uh, the, the old NIV at least, would equate a talent with $1,000. Okay. Now, there's a big difference between bags of gold and $1,000. Okay. I use this all the time when I'm teaching because... Uh, about the time I'm halfway through an hour-long class, my students have already paid $1,000 just to listen to me talk. <laughs> they don't like being reminded of that. And, and then they remind me that it's really their parents paying, and so it really doesn't matter. But... Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, and I imagine you're going to have to pay for about 10 more years for Melinda to be... <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah. The boys you're going to have to pay for. She's responsible. Okay. So, um, big difference in translation. Number one, talent is not a translation. That's a transliteration. You're taking Greek letters and supplying English letters. Talent is not a translation. It should not appear in your scriptures. Um, but the NIV, the old NIV, did $1,000, which actually is a really good, bad translation. 
Right, now, now here's, well, I have to try and explain that. In the first century, people lived at what is called the subsistence level. If they work today, they eat today. And most people don't have steady jobs. The only people that have steady jobs are the filthy rich and slaves. It's one of the reasons why people often sold themselves into slavery, because it was the only way to guarantee the future of your family. And so, if I work today, I eat today. And what I would eat is bread. And so what the translators of the NIV did was they calculated the current cost of bread in America and figured out how much one year's worth of bread would cost, and that was $1,000. That works in a subsistence-level economy. That doesn't work in our economy. A talent is actually a weight of money. It is 70 pounds of gold. Right? which in today's money is worth somewhere around $1.6 million for one talent. Okay. That's a very different picture. Okay. The money that this guy is throwing around is the gross national product of a small kingdom in the first century. Jesus is using amounts of money that were inconceivable to the people that he was talking to. And he's saying something about God's graciousness and how much He gifts us. And it, it just drives me crazy when somebody comes up to me and says, well, I'm just a one-talent person. I'm going, are you crazy? <laughs> you should be excited about that. God has given us all of this stuff. So we got the first parable talking about how we should be paying attention to God's timetable, not ours. And now He's thrown all of this this stuff to us. He's blessed us with all of these riches, so what should we be doing with them? Well, that's where the story gets interesting. Because when we read the story, we think the one talent guy blew it. But the people originally listening to this story would have said he was the only sane one. You don't go investing money in the first century. A bank is just a guy with a table that says, hey, give me some money, I might give it to you with extra tomorrow. There's no FDIC, there's no way to know whether you're going to have anything extra or not. The fact that these guys made double is irrelevant. They risk Losing everything. And they know what that landowner is going to do when he comes back. They're going to get in trouble. The guy with the one talent does what everybody in the first century would have done. The fiscally responsible way to deal with a large sum of money is to hide it in the ground. He's doing it right. And it's very interesting about every five years, you will hear about a rich trove of Roman gold and silver coins being discovered by a farmer somewhere in the Mediterranean. Uh, the last big discovery was actually in England, of all places. And I think it's a 3% finder's reward. And the farmer got something like $3 billion. Okay. Yes, if you have money, invest in farmland in the Mediterranean. 
and get some really deep hoes and plow. This, this still happens today, that people are discovering these old hidden treasures because that's what you did. And if you died prematurely without telling your family where to find the stuff, okay, you save it for some guy farming in England. But the original hearers of Jesus' parable would have been shocked at what Jesus says happens. That the, the one guy who did what was right is the one who gets in trouble. But it's because God plays by different rules. That God is giving us His stuff and He's empowering us to risk it all. Just throw it all. I can't tell you how many elders meetings I've been in where good ministries were shot down because we wanted to wait until the Baptists or the Methodists did it first so we could see if it worked. Churches have been behind the ball on so many different things. Why was racism addressed by the government before the church? To take what God has given us and risk it all. To just go throw it out there. Because it's His. And so, in the second parable, Jesus is preparing His disciples. It's not just thinking about God's timetable, but taking what God has given us and just using it lavishly. Investing it in God's work. And seeing what types of returns God's going to produce. And then we get to the third parable, the scene of judgment, where we have Christ on a throne and he's separating the nations, the sheep and the goats. You have to remember, Jesus is building an argument here, each parable building on the other. So the first one's about timing, the second one is about investing. And the third one is about what should we be doing? What should we be doing? Precisely. And we have this judgment scene. And Jesus starts talking about how people had been feeding him when he was hungry. And giving him something to drink when he was thirsty. Inviting him in when he was homeless. And visiting him when he was sick or in prison. And what's interesting to me is both groups are surprised. I can understand the group that did not engage in those ministries being surprised. Saying, well, uh, Jesus, if you would only told us it was really you, we would have done something different. But it's even the other ones, the ones who did the right activities that are surprised. You mean that was you? I thought it was just some poor person. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the entire story is about how God is with us. It starts by telling us that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, and ends with the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always. Matthew is about how God is with us, but God is with us not just where two or three are gathered in his name, but where there are hungry and thirsty, and homeless, and imprisoned, 
and sick people. Now, these words that Jesus mentions here are not new words. These are words that are found elsewhere in Scripture. Turn to Isaiah 58. Let me set up what's going on in Isaiah 58 because it actually is key to understanding what Jesus is is saying here. Some of the Israelites are complaining that God's just not really giving them as much as they would like. And they're frustrated because they've been throwing some really great worship services. They've been doing all the rituals the right way, right? They... They, they do the Lord's Supper every Sunday and they make sure you have the right number of elders and you know, you're picking on this. We do it right. And they come to Isaiah and go, what else does God want? I mean, we're doing worship great. People come and and they're excited about what we have to offer, and they, they are following everything down to a T. And Isaiah says, Well, you've sort of missed the point of worship. That worship was never about giving perfect things to God, but that worship was always about being in communion with God. And and there's a very, very important difference there. I have a number of students who give me chocolate about the time that major tests come up or major paper assignments. Um, Now, that is partly due to the fact that I'm not very subtle in pointing out that chocolate may help. But the students who bring me chocolate are not bringing me chocolate because they appreciate me as a person. They don't bring chocolate because we have built such a rapport that it's just sort of natural to give what is good to your teacher, as Scripture demands, by the way. (laughs) And we all know chocolate is good. There's a difference between that and the types of friendships that I've been able to create with some students. Who will also bring me chocolate? But there's a difference. One is manipulative. One is communion. And we can do the same thing with worship. We can turn worship into something that is primarily manipulative. If I do this, then God owes me this. If I go about it doing this way, then I'm guaranteed this. And we treat God, as, as someone has put it, as a cosmic Coke machine. I put in my 75 cents or whatever the cost is now, and I get my Coke. And if I don't, I'm going to kick that machine. And shake it and do all sorts of things. But God is calling us into a very, very different relationship. God is with us. And so Isaiah says, okay, 
I I could go through an entire list of things that you were doing, but let's just start with fasting. It says, you're putting on a lovely fast. You know, you're going without food and and you're making sure people know about it. I'm so holy, look at me, I'm fasting. Being a follower of God is really painful. He really needs to be appreciative of all that I've sacrificed for him. And Isaiah says, how can you consider that to be worship if you're not feeding the hungry? That's not worship. That's manipulation. He says, you can have the most beautiful worship service in the world, but it's not worship if God's not part of it. And one of the things that we sometimes forget is that there are times in the Old Testament when God just picks up and moves. The glory raises up from the temple and moves out. Sometimes I wonder if we attend church more than God does. And it's sort of interesting in the story of when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, we're told that Jesus removed Himself in the language of the glory of God removing itself from the temple because the temple is about to be destroyed because it is not producing fruit. Oh, the worship services may be magnificent, but they are empty. They may be right down the line as to how they're supposed to be done, but they are vacant. And look at Isaiah 58, verse 6. We have language here that will get picked up again in Isaiah 61 about setting the oppressed free, which Jesus quotes in His first sermon, or at least the first sermon we have recorded in Luke chapter 4, that when it comes time for Jesus to proclaim what type of leader He's going to be, He's not going to be a military leader that kills Romans. He's going to set the oppressed free. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to preach good news from Isaiah to the poor. And everybody pats him on the back and says, man, that was a great sermon. And Jesus' response is, if you thought that was a great sermon, you didn't listen. Let me rehearse it for you. When I read Isaiah 61 and you heard that I will set the oppressed free, I'm talking about setting the Gentiles free. And when you heard about recovery of sight for the blind, you were thinking Jewish blind, but I'm telling you, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. I'm bringing sight to the blind. And you may have thought of the Jewish poor, but I'm giving freedom and I am preaching the good news to all the poor. And then his hometown congregation wants to throw him off a cliff. And he uses Old Testament stories from Elisha and Elijah to talk about how God has always done that. And yet, from generation to generation, some Israelites forgot. And then look at verse 7. 
Doesn't this sound familiar? You know, verse 6, he starts out, isn't this the fast that I have chosen? And he talks about setting the oppressed free. But then he starts talking about distributing bread to the poor. Inviting the stranger into the house. Clothing the naked. All of this language that Jesus uses in that third parable in Matthew 25. He's talking to disciples that cannot fathom how you would worship God without the temple. And Matthew is writing to disciples who are wrestling with how do you worship God without a temple? And the answer is the way God has always wanted to be worshipped. Because God has always viewed communion as something that is not just what we might say is vertical between me and God, but also horizontal between me and others. That there are really two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God, the vertical, and love your neighbor as yourself, the horizontal. That the Ten Commandments really do deal with godliness, my relationship with God, and righteousness, my relationship with people. And to take those and separate them and view one as more important than the other is to skew God and to skew worship. If we are worshiping something in that instance, it is not the God of the Bible. It doesn't matter how nice and how biblically accurate our worship service is. It's not worship. And in fact, it condemns. Because it's not just an issue of the sheep get to come in and the goats get, you know, sort of the, the rundown section of heaven. As Jesus presents it, this is a matter of salvation. And as Jesus presents it, it's clear that worship is more than what we do on Sundays. Sunday, I think, is intent. It is part of worship. We'll talk about that when we get to the end of, of Romans 11 and the beginning of Romans 12. Sunday is part of worship. To go back to second grade math, right, the universal set is worship. Sunday is a small subset called the assembly. It belongs. But what happens on Sunday? It's where we get plugged back into reality. On Sunday, we partake of the table of the Lord and we're reminded that the story that shapes reality in the entire cosmos is the story of one who gives up everything for the benefit of another. That it is the cross of Christ that shapes how we interact with God and with those around us, because that is how God interacted with us. One of the coolest things about Scripture is God never asks us to do something He hasn't done Himself first. And we are called to be plugged into the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it gives us new life from a lousy week before, and it empowers us for a new life for the lousy week that's coming up. but gives us a very different perspective on how we measure lousy. 
The world would say the cross is a horrible defeat. And yet we proclaim it as victory until He comes. There is no end to the story. There is no defeat. That it is in fact when we are serving others that God wins His greatest victories. So it's not an accident that Jesus goes to these particular words to talk about what should we be doing with everything that God has given us. He's given us a lot of time, a lot longer time than I'd like. I'm ready to go home. But He's given me time. He's richly blessed me in so many different ways. The challenge is, am I engaged in His worship? The title of this should have been A Worship That Saves. But I think sometimes we do need to be reminded there is a worship that condemns. Thank you.